Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. This is the book of Revelation, session 46. And uh, all the previous sessions are available online, both the MP3s and the notes, if you're interested in catching up or you just want to go back and review at any point. Uh, They're online, and tonight, session 46 is entitled, The Victorious Church at the End of the Age. Now, we started down the road of what this looks like a little bit in our last session uh, when we were talking about the the bride of Christ and and the bride entering into fullness. But we're going to continue along this line of thinking because here's one of the things that's really important about the church getting ready for our future. We need a picture of our future. We need a picture of what the Word of God says is going to be the case, of what the Word says about who we are, about what we'll face, about our challenges, about how we're going to overcome. And so we want to talk about the church walking in the fullness of her identity, of her calling, of what the Word prophesies about who will be, what will be. And all of this culminates at the end of the age in the time frame before Jesus comes. If I can be honest, this subject gives me a lot of hope. When I look at the book of Revelation specifically, but you could look anywhere in in passages about the end times. When I look at the book of Revelation and what the book of Revelation says, for sure the church will look like before Jesus comes. I am filled with hope because so much of what I see right now in the landscape is not that awesome. It's not quite as uh, incredible as that which we are promised. And so it gives me hope for where we're headed, and, uh, and not a false hope, but a guaranteed hope, because we know that the Bible is true. So here in uh, our, our uh, kind of opening here on page one, a church walking in fullness. Like I said, last week we talked about the equally yoked bride of Christ, the church being equally yoked to Jesus. Otherwise, it's just criminal. And, uh, and we're, the church is growing up into that. And as we kind of think about that, we think about Jesus deserving an equally yoked bride. That makes sense to us. But the more that we talk about the church growing, maturing, strengthening, believing the Bible, doing the Bible, embracing the Bible, the more that we look at what the Word says that the church is called to, the more it just makes sense that unless Jesus is a bad leader, We're going to be going where he says we're going. That we're going to grow up into the things that he says that we're going to reach. And so uh, he is not a liar. He is for sure telling the truth. And he's an exceptional leader. And so he's actually going to help us, even in our weak state, get to where the Bible promises that we're going. What I want to start with here in letter A is this concept of maturity. The New Testament speaks about the the church maturing into her fullness, into her identity, into her purpose. Maturing. And we all understand the concept of maturity. I mean, we think about, you know, the kids that are running around here and what the expectation level is of them when they're kids. You know, when they're five, there's an expectation level. And it looks very different than when they're 15. And it looks very different than when they're 25. But the Word of God says that we are all on this maturing scale as individuals, but also as the church at large. You could even break that down in the middle and say congregations. We are maturing 
until he comes. And I'll just tell you, when he finally pulls the cake out of the oven, it's going to be fully cooked. Okay? When it's time for Jesus' return, he is not going to be coming back to an immature bride that's ill-equipped. He will be returning to a church that is ready, that is prepared, and that is matured to the fullness of what she could accomplish before his second coming. Now, we're not there yet. And so part of what is a, a little, um, a bit confusing for us, we read verses, and we're going to look at a bunch of them tonight. We read verses like the, one we're gonna look, the ones we're going to look at tonight, and we see a different version of the church than the one that we currently experience by and large, right now in 2020, in our uh, you know, frame of reference and in our scope of view. The church that we read about, which is promised, prophesied, we are in process to becoming, but we're not there yet. So it's like looking at a five-year-old and trying to have the same expectations of the 25-year-old. It's like, we know we're headed to 25. We know we're headed to, you know, young adult and being able to do this thing and, you know, having the strength and the understanding and a little bit of, you know, street smarts to be able to navigate. We understand that, but right now we're just trying to keep the five-year-old from running out in the street and getting crushed by a car, all right? And we need to understand that the scenario that is promising to expedite our maturity has not yet happened. The scenario that promises to hurry the process, quicken the process, bake the cake a lot faster is actually the context of the end times. And those end time realities are going to strengthen the church greatly. And that's been what we've been looking at the last number of weeks. What I want to talk a little bit about tonight is kind of the end product. I want to talk a little bit about where we're headed because if we can get a picture for where we're headed... Man, it'll give us lots of grace uh, for one another right now and for the church at large right now, but it'll also give us vision for where we're going and the steps that we need to be taking. We individuals, we the church. Look at Matthew uh, 13, 29 through 30. I put this in there because it's a great parable describing the process right now. While you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. We know this passage. I kind of cut right into the middle here. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first go collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring them into the barn. Here's kind of the thought process. When you're looking at a little weed and a little wheat, they look a lot the same because they're little. They're both kind of green and kind of you know gnarly looking. But as they grow bigger, it becomes very obvious which one's a weed and which one's a wheat. And Jesus' admonition is, let both grow up to their fullness at the end of the age when the harvest comes. The wicked will be full-on wicked, and the righteous will be full-on righteous. The, the, the false church at the end of the age, the, the harlot Babylon and the whole system that's going to come up, will be mature, and it will be ugly. It will be scary ugly. But the church will be mature. In her fullness. And Jesus says it's at that time when both have reached as big as that wheat is going to grow and as big as that wheat is going to grow, that's when I'm coming back. I'm coming back actually at the point of maturity in both camps. Next, part of the thinking here that I want us in our victorious church at the end of the age kind of thought process, I want us understanding we are absolutely, without exception, headed for war. The first and second seal... We studied some weeks back. The first and second seal outline not the only war, the last war. Jesus actually said that there's going to be a continual uh, trend of wars until the end. 
But the end war, you could call it World War III. It's probably even going to be bigger than that. It's the Antichrist declaring war on the planet. It's a global reality. And I want us to understand that's where we're headed. That is absolutely where we're marching towards. Now, Jesus knowing that, if he, again, the whole concept of he's a good leader, he is going to prepare the church for what is coming. He's going to be preparing us. But I mean, it is a gnarly war. He, he is a good leader, but he's going to prepare the ranks of the body of Christ. He's going to prepare the church for what is coming. I gave you there, uh, at bottom of page one, Revelation 6, a little excerpt there from 1 through 4. The Lamb opened the first of the seals. The Lamb is Jesus. He's opening these seals. And before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Talking about the Antichrist. And then another horse, this one's the, uh, the uh, false prophet riding this one. Another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay one another. He was, to him was given a large sword. Jesus is the one presenting the scenario that opens up the, the uh, first and second seals, and well, all of them, and we're headed into that war. So in the context of the body of Christ being made a victorious church, victorious in what? Well, victorious in a lot of things, but for one, victorious in the craziest war that has ever occurred on the earth. And Jesus is preparing us. He will prepare the bride for that uh, hour. Well, what does this hour call for? Top of page two. This season of conditioning and equipping, right now, we're in it right now. It's really what this current time period in the earth is for, this one that we're living in. It's really what it's supposed to all be about. A season for the bride of Christ to give herself to be made ready for the actual narrative that we're marching towards. Here's part of the, uh, the problem. We live in an hour right now, and I don't mean because of COVID. I mean just because of the way that life has been talked about, the way that the, uh, the narrative has been posed, most people believe life is just going to kind of continue on as it has for the last number of decades. Maybe look a little different. This COVID thing is horrible, but surely this COVID thing will be over in a minute and then we'll kind of get back to normal. We're not getting back to normal. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse until the second coming. And there might be seasons of reprieve where there's a moment where things kind of balance out a little bit, but don't let anybody think because things balanced out a little bit that that means that the worst is over. Something far worse will happen just about down the road. And then something far worse than that. Here's the problem. If we're living in a lullaby state, we're living lulled to sleep that we are not in the biblical narrative, that we're in some, that somehow the Bible is not telling the truth. And that, you know, things are just going to kind of keep going. It'll be fine. Everything's going to be nice and normal. Then we're actually living in a false version of reality. Because the Bible tells us where things are going. And it is, it is folly to live life like the Bible isn't true. To live life like the signs of the times, which we're already seeing, are not indicating that we're on a path towards the second coming. We absolutely are. We need to be ready for the fact that it is an hour now to be preparing for what Jesus called in Matthew 24, 21, a time of great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. 
we do not want to be alive in this generation outside of the biblical narrative. We want to be in the storyline, believing the storyline, raising our kids like it's true, spending our time like it's true, preparing like it's true, uh, preparing our ministries and our families like it's true. We want to be in the narrative. And that's a big piece of why we're going through the book of Revelation as slowly as we are. So we've got actually a chance to digest it and understand the, the, uh, the reality. Here's where fullness is going. The church, in the context of the coming decades, however long, much time we have left, I don't know, is that one decade or five? I don't know. However much time we've got left, the church is going to be coming into completion of maturity in our assignment Maturity in our identity, maturity in our expression, and just our, our maturity in righteousness. The Lord is right now in this hour preparing the church for his second coming. And that's the context that we read when we're reading the book of Revelation. It was written primarily to the generation that's going to experience it. So we want to be reading the book of Revelation differently. We don't want to read it like it's a, a book of fables that we're reading it as a bunch of myths. We want to be reading it as a future textbook, like that it's talking about history. It just happens to be talking about future history. It's talking about the reality of life that we're going to live, our kids are going to live, their kids are going to live, depending on how this all folds, uh, unfolds in, the, in you know, the coming decades. But the part that I want us focusing on tonight is the church will be a victorious bride at the end of the age. We'll be a victorious church. And we're going to look at those verses. It's super clear. We want to be getting our headspace around that. That's who we are. That's who we're growing up into. That's the trajectory of our lives. That's the focal point. So if whatever else we're doing, giving our lives to, thinking about, spending time and money on, isn't related to that, we want to reassess that. Because that's the storyline that we found ourselves in. Church in the fullness of her identity. Middle of page two here. Now here's what I want to do. I just want to give us some little, little excerpts, little snapshots of what the book of Revelation says we will be related to our identity. Related to our identity reaching fullness. Okay, And I want to encourage you to go back specifically on this section. On uh, section two, Roman numeral two in these notes, I want to encourage you to go back and spend some time in the prayer room, get a two-hour block, take each one of these verses one at a time. The idea is connected to them, but take each one of these verses and talk to the Lord about how you fit in the fullness of this idea related to the identity of the church, okay? Here's the first. A celebrated companion for Jesus. Yes, bride, but I just want to talk about a celebrated companion, the, look at this, uh, Revelation 19, 6 through 7. Look at what heaven is doing in relationship to the concept of a mature bride. Heaven says this, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Why? The wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride being celebrated by heaven. Think about that. Think about the identity of the church as the celebrated companion of Jesus from heaven's perspective. Heaven is seeing the church at the end of the age and going, look, she's ready. She's ready to stand with him. And heaven is saying, hallelujah, 
Praise God. Why are we praising God right now? We're praising him because look at the prepared bride. Look at this celebrated companion. The church marching into the end of the age is going to be the celebrated companion of Jesus. That's part of our identity. A confident bride. Okay, now, that other one, the one we just read, was about heaven's perspective of who we are. Now let's look at one of the things that is the most crazy dynamic about a confident bride. This is the idea. A confident bride that recognizes who we are and that we have the ear of the king. That when we whisper, he hears us and responds. Look at Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take uh, the free gift of the water of life. It's right after this that Jesus' response is, yes, I am coming quickly. Why do I bring this up? At the end of the age, the church understands who she is and understands if we cry, come, he stops being in heaven, which he's been in forever. He stops that. Because we as the bride confidently said, okay, come on back now. And as the confident bride cries out, come, he actually comes. This is a confident bride. That is a very different perspective. Right now, if we were all to try to muster up all the faith that we could and go, come Jesus, none of us would really believe he'd show up five minutes later. None of us would believe that. We're not there yet, but we will be. We will be, we will say it, and he will come. That is a confident bride. That is a very different perspective and mindset for the state of the church, the thought process of the bride at the end of the age. A righteous partner, oh my goodness, with great fruit at hard times. Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 7, he gave us the parable of comparing, comparing our salvation to trees. He said, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. Well, at the end of the age, the good trees are going to be bearing epic fruit, and the bad trees are going to be bearing the worst fruit ever. And it's going to be that whole wheat and tares concept we talked about a minute ago. But here's the thing. Revelation 19, we read this passage and it says, His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. This fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The church will have grown up into maturity in righteousness. So now just don't think of her as a, a confident bride or as this celebrated companion, but now think of the church as this righteousness, this walking in righteousness, a righteous partner, a trustworthy partner. The church at the end of the age, we're talking tonight about the victorious church that we are growing up into. Part of our victory is confidence. Part of our victory is maturity in righteousness. We look around right now and we see a great measure of immaturity in so many of these different fields, so many of these different realms. Start to imagine ourselves as marching towards the end time clock before Jesus returns. A mature bride, mature in righteousness. That's, that's a beautiful idea. A praying priesthood. Now we've looked at these verses before. Revelation 1, 
Revelation 5 and Revelation 20, they all say the same thing. We have been made to be a kingdom, and we have been made to be priests to serve God forever. We spent a whole session, really even two or three, talking about this concept of a priesthood. I want us to talk about the concept of a mature priesthood. The church is growing up into the most mature priesthood that's ever been. Right now, we look and we kind of we pan the earth, and we look at little houses of prayer like this, and we see other expressions, and we go, this concept of a priesthood is not real concrete for us right now. We actually think the real priesthood was the one that Aaron was doing back in the day. We go, okay, that was the real one, or, or even under David's leadership and the way that the priesthood looked a little bit different there. We look at that, and we kind of identify that as, you know, that was the real priesthood. Right now, we're just kind of like a shadow of that. We are going the opposite direction. Before Jesus comes, the church will be operating as a priesthood where Aaron and David will be going, oh, that's what a real priesthood is. They will be looking at us entering into fullness because what it says about our identity is we were made to be priests. Right now, we barely even have a revelation that we are priests. But before he comes, we're going to be walking in fullness of what that revelation looks like, feels like, we will be identifying as priests. It doesn't mean we will trade priest, you know, bride for priest and be like, nah, I'm not the bride anymore, now I'm the priest. We'll be both, as well as sons and daughters of God, as well as a thousand other things. But right now, we don't really have that revelation. We will. The bride of Christ, the church at the end of the age, will be operating as the most functional, successful, powerful heaven calling down in operation priesthood in the history of mankind. The church will be operating as a priesthood. That's a significant portion of what Malachi 1.11 is all about, that there's going to be pure incense rising from every place in the earth. It's a significant component of what Jesus said when he said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Before he comes back, Jesus, not lying, will be able to look at the church and go, that right there, the church on the earth, is a house of prayer, and he won't have to like try to trick himself to say it and say it honestly. The church is growing up into a fully functional priesthood to the point where I promise you, King David and Aaron will both, when we graduate and we stand up there, they will be asking us for pointers on the priesthood. They will be going, man, you guys took that thing to a whole new level that we weren't even thinking about. That's what the fullness of the priesthood is because God created mankind to be a kingdom of priests forever. And the church is growing up into that. So part of what the reason for this, that I'm kind of belaboring this point, it's helping us to identify what's supposed to be happening in 2020 and 2030. If we've got time, 2040. What's supposed to be happening? We're supposed to be growing up into the fullness of being a priesthood. One of many things. A resurrected people. Just thinking about victorious. At the end of this, now, I understand there's timeline points. I'm not so much concerned about what happens when in this, in this session. I'm trying to get us a vision for who we are, where we're headed, and how kick butt we are, okay? At the end of this, we all get resurrected bodies that are indestructible. That's the victorious church at the end of the age. We need to be thinking about that because you live differently when you realize you get a full body bulletproof vest in just a minute. You think about life a little bit differently. You're like, I mean, really, what if bad things happen to me? So what? I'm coming back with a bulletproof vest all over. 
The concept of a resurrected body and all of the glory of what that means. When you think a resurrected body, you have to be thinking victory. I mean, you can't picture resurrected body, especially resurrected church. Not just talking about one, now talk about the entire church. The resurrected church and somehow take away the concept of victory. This is where we're marching towards. Oh, by the way, that resurrected army marches out of heaven with Jesus to declare war on the Antichrist and his regime. Talk about a victorious church at the end of the age. Indestructible army from heaven comes with Jesus on white horses to really kick tail and take names. There's nothing like this. There's, we are talking about the most victorious moment. And I don't mean just that moment. I mean the entire end time drama of the church walking in the most high form of victory we've ever seen the redeemed in human history ever walk in. And it's not just one area. It's area after area after area. It's boom, 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 boom. So yes, there are great trials coming. Yes, there are great difficulties, but they pale by comparison to a confident bride with a resurrected body. I mean, it's just like, you put it all together, it's like, let's get a vision for who we are and for where we're going. Again, these verses straight out of Revelation. Revelation 20, verse 4, talking about the resurrected body. They'd not worship the beast or his image, and they'd not received his uh, mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The army marching out. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Before the end of this, we will be an operational government for the kingdom of heaven. We will actually understand the heartbeat of God and be able to flow in his governmental purposes in a far greater way than we do right now. Just as a little for instance, if you've ever prayed for a bad thing to stop, that was government. If you've ever one time prayed, God, that bad thing's happening, stop that bad thing. You're operating in the government of heaven. It's called intercession. And if God did it, which he's, we've all got many answers to those kinds of prayers, we were actually seeing one aspect of the government of heaven released on the earth. Well, what about a mature intercessor? What about not an immature one praying that doesn't really even know whether they're in accordance with God's will or not? What about a global church that's engaged in the storyline that understands right and wrong, that's in the heartbeat of God, that's keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, that's then praying globally, God, stop this, start this, do this. We will be operating in the most incredible form of government, the government of heaven on earth. We're growing up into that maturity. That's exciting. I mean, we think about it now, it's like, I don't really know how powerful our prayers feel I know they've, they're valuable. I mean, the word says they're valuable whether they feel good or not. But a time is coming where whatever grade level we're in, in our understanding of, of prayer and intercession right now, and I'm going to use the word government, whatever level that we understand right now, we're in kindergarten. And we are going to understand more as the clock uh, you know, continues to tick down. A prophetic church. I'm going to skip over that one, let you read that later. Just know, at the end of the age, the church is going to be operating in a clarity on the prophetic as at no time in history. All right, so now let's talk about some other ways. Those were mostly related to our identity. 
being prophetic, being confident, being authoritative in government, being this, being that. Now let's talk about some other things that the Word says related to our victory at the end of the age. We're going to spend, I believe, next session. If it's not next, it'll be the one after. We're going to spend next session talking all about what it means that the church will be sealed in Revelation chapter 7. That should say Revelation 7, 1 through 4, not Revelation 9, 1 through 4. So that's a, uh, a misquote there. Revelation 7. We're going to spend a whole session talking about that. For now, because we don't have time to develop it, just understand part of the victory of the church is the church will be sealed by God to protect us from bad stuff. Okay? That's pretty awesome. When you're talking about victory, that is a significant component of victory. Next, the church experiencing the great harvest, but not experiencing it uh, as sideline sitters, experiencing it as partners. God wants to bring the great harvest in. You know, Jesus was the one that commissioned the church, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to go make disciples of all nations. You just sit around and watch. He said, you go and do it. He said, and then teach them to obey everything, and I'm with you even to the end of the age. See that? Even to the end of the age is actually part of the promise that the fullness of the completion of the Great Commission won't happen until the the end of the age, until right before he comes back. So we're going to be doing the Great Commission all the way up until the moment that he comes. We're going to get to experience a great influx of souls. Revelation, uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14 this gospel of the kingdom will be preached, top of page five, and the, uh, in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The end comes after the gospel's been preached in all nations. But look at Revelation 9, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 7, 9 through 14. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, tongue, people, and language. They were standing before the uh, throne and before the Lamb. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is describing a great multitude getting saved in the great tribulation. These are those who came out of the great tribulation. Well, what happened during the great tribulation? They washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They gave their lives to Jesus. They got saved. And now they're given adorned white garments. There will be a great harvest, even in the midst of the craziest time ever, the greatest strategy ever, a tragedy ever. The church will be operating in power. I won't go into deep uh, uh, detail on this, but just so that you can see it, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, I heard in a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God. I just want to focus just on this part. Now have come the power of the kingdom. Now. Well, wait, hasn't the power of the kingdom always existed? Yes, this is an upgrade. This is something different. This is more. This is connected to moments like the one we studied last week when we studied the seals, uh, the final seal. This is moments like that, this now moment. Now the church has been empowered with an even greater measure of the power and the authority of the kingdom in order that the church could operate, it says, and the authority of his Christ. Why? Why does it happen then? Why is this endowment of power occurring in the great tribulation? The next word, for. For the accuser of our brothers, Satan, 
who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down to the earth. That happens during the great tribulation period. And they overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. The church will be endowed with a greater measure of power. The more we walk towards God's purposes, the more upgrades keep happening. Unfortunately, the more that the tares also continue to grow in things like witchcraft, immorality, all sorts of measure of demonic power. It's going to be really intense. I mean, it is essential that the church grow in power because we're given as many verses, perhaps, about the world growing in supernatural power. And it's not a good power. So there's going to absolutely have to be a greater level of the operation of the Holy Spirit and the moving and the gifts of, of the Spirit in order for us to be able to just continue to make headway. The church will be made ready. I'm going to keep going. The church will be looking to the two witnesses. When the two witnesses, and we're going to spend a session or two on the two witnesses, but when the two witnesses, which I'll just give you this, you can read the verse on your own, they will be the most powerful anointed vessels in the history of humanity. They will be operating, operating in greater level of power and authority than Jesus operated in. Jesus had more power, but didn't use it. Jesus actually said, it's better that I go. Because then, all of you who believe in me, you can do even greater works than these. It says of these two witnesses, they can call down any plague they want as often as they like. It's never been said of that of any human being ever in history. These two men will be leading the charge, and the church will be looking to them. I'm telling you, the church is not going to be walking around like a whimpering dog when the two witnesses are leading the charge in the earth. We're going to be looking to them for, for marching orders. The church is going to see the two witnesses and go, we're going to do like they do. We're going to be following their example. That is a powerful church. That is a victorious church at the end of the age. Furthermore, top of page six, we're almost done, and then you'll break into discussion groups. Top of page six, the church will see her hindrances removed. Not every hindrance in a moment, but every hindrance over time. Do you know that the reason for the judgments in the book of Revelation is not mostly to punish. It's definitely to punish the wicked, but it's not mostly. It's mostly to get out of the way everything that's hindering the church. Do you know how much aggression is going to be coming against the church at the end of the age? Do you know that when you've got aggressors coming against you, it's harder to do stuff? The Lord is going to be removing those hindrances. It's actually what the judgments are primarily aimed at is removing wickedness, removing the wicked, and removing the opposition that's coming up against the church. As the church is watching God go to bat for us and remove those hindrances, you're talking about a church walking in great victory. The church will stand strong during the great tribulation. Just look at this, the middle of uh, page six here. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. It was talking about those that are going to take the mark of the beast says all will except those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the church. Let's talk about that group for a second. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, captivity they'll go. Anyone to be killed with a sword, with a sword they'll be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. It is going to be a church at the end of the age that yes, we'll face difficulty, but we'll face it head on. 
with great patience and endurance. We're not going to be on the sideline. We're also not going to be a whimpering puppy. We are going to be victorious, standing against with patience, with endurance, with a bold face, with, with strength in our spirit. The church is going to be walking in victory. And the last one that we'll just look at, and then we'll break into groups. The church, just I want you to think about this. If For the end of the age, for the church at the end of the age, we're going to know our Bibles. We're going to know the wedding supper of the Lamb is right around the corner. And by then, we'll have more clarity about it than we do right now. We're going to be thinking, hey, you know what? It's only a few days, and then we get to have the wedding supper of the Lamb. I can make it. Can you make it? Let's just hang in there. What, what are we going to eat? What won't we eat, friend? Beverly's making snickerdoodle cookies. They'll be there for the wedding of the Lamb. We're going to be thinking about our future related to the biblical narrative. You know, when the Bible becomes real because of the judgments, it will actually give us even greater strength to believe all the victory points too and all the future moments. And so when we're seeing the judgments happen, we will also be thinking the wedding banquet is real. We are living just a few weeks, months, years away from that wedding banquet. We'll be thinking about our lives in view of that. That changes, you know, when my kids know that we're going to Six Flags next weekend, they live right that week. Man, they are thinking about those rides. They are just excited. There's an anticipation of what is coming a week away. Six Flags. I'm telling you, the wedding supper of the Lamb is Six Flags to the 10th power times a billion. And we will be living in light of that, a victorious church filled with hope and understanding and expectation. So what is the prophetic church operating in the fullness of the prophetic? What are we propheticing? What are we prophesying? What are we saying? Uh, so I would think in that hour, we're, we will, just my opinion, I think the church will have already gotten good at the concept of the primary use of the prophetic, and that is to exhort, to encourage, to instruct. I think at that point, we will have already gotten really good at getting encouraging words for one another. And I don't want to downplay that. That is a very important part of the prophetic ministry, an essential part of the prophetic ministry. But when I'm saying the prophetic church, I'm talking about the church as a whole entering into the stuff that we haven't even ever touched before. And that is we're prophesying over nations and situations and circumstances. We're, we're getting the prophetic revelation of what tomorrow will look like play by play. And while one person won't have the full picture, collectively we will. And so it's going to be tag team prophesying. And, you know, you're going to walk into the, the post office and there's three of you. And one of you gets, you know, this piece of it. And the other bit gets this piece. And the other gets this piece. And you're prophesying bits of encouragement and also giving the gospel. But it's also, you're laying down a really incredible testimony. Because tomorrow when you come back and those things happened, all of a sudden hearts are, are open and receptive to things that you're doing. It won't just be at the post office. It's going to be at the every office. It's going to be governmental leaders. It's going to be scenarios, people on the street, your neighbor, that lost uh, family member that would never uh, give their, their life over. But even more, I, I mean, not even more, in addition, the church is going to be prophesying even over those and in situations of those that are not going to repent. They are not going to give their life to the Lord. And it's going to be even a testimony and a witness. Great example. Moses knew Pharaoh's heart is hard. 
Pharaoh will not listen. And yet Moses was prophesying about tomorrow. And it wasn't even strictly redemptive because he was prophesying as a witness. God is going to do this to you because you won't repent. There's going to be a lot of that going on as well. And I'll just say it this way. If the two witnesses can call down any plague they want as often as they want, there will be a measure of that in lesser degree on the entire church. The church will be able to operate in a like type, but a lesser degree. And maybe it's way, way, way lesser. But man, we don't see any of that right now. The church as a whole will be operating in the prophetic, not just in the words of encouragement, but in telling you what tomorrow holds or next week or next month with incredible detail. So great question. Uh, Andy, question back there. Do I think that Dan Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, will be picked to cater any portion of the wedding supper of the lamb? I mean, probably, you know, I mean, I feel like he's going to have his part. Each part does its part. You know, I feel like there's got to be Chick-fil-A sandwiches there for it to really be a true feast. I mean, because you got to have America represented, too, you know, so it's like there's going to be food from everywhere, I'm just imagining. Uh, Should we start writing our petition letters now? That's right. Lord, Lord, we want, we want Chick-fil-A sandwiches at the wedding supper. Hey, I will say this. One thing we can be confident of, seriously, I want to be in all seriousness, that meal will not disappoint. I mean, for real. There will no, be no one show up and be like, oh, man, it's only lamb. I don't even like lamb. Like, I, it's like, I, I mean, that meal will be, it will encompass the food of every tribe, language, people. I mean, we're going to show up and we're, our foods are going to be reflected there. Which to me, the, the coolest part about the wedding supper of the Lamb, which we'll spend a whole session on that too, the coolest part to me is the church will have just been war mode. Will have been marching. Who cooked the food? It's like, I think the angels, I think there's a dispatch of angels that somehow are heavenly cooks or something that's making all this food for the wedding supper of the Lamb. I think it's going to be pretty intense. Okay. Uh, Caitlin, your question. Yeah, okay. So right now there's a lot of diversity, a lot of different denominations, groups, focal points. This church and group really focuses on homeless outreach. This group really focuses on, you know, this justice issue, this discipleship issue. This. So right now there's a lot of variance, but as we grow up into maturity, is that variance still going to exist? Yes, but the, the uh, point of contention won't. Uh, we will have matured past pride. So there won't be pride and judgment against one another. There'll be points of celebration of what that group is doing. But there'll also be growth points. So, you know, you would never look at uh, the, you know, you're just picking that five-year-old example again. And let's say a five-year-old is really, really good at, you know, art, but they're only good at drawing. We would hope and expect that that artistic gift would grow and be strengthened over time. And also, they're, they're also going to learn how to play a little bit of sports and a little bit of that and, you know, be able to write their name. We're not going to just go, oh, good, you know how to draw. That's all you do on the planet. You know, the, the revelation of the body of Christ, the Lord giving different parts of the body strengths is from the Lord. But there's also the whole common ground of the operation of the kingdom, which we all need at least a level of, uh, of understanding of and capacity to be able to operate in and for sure to be able to appreciate. So I think that as we move forward, there's going to be a 
those gifts and strengths are only going to be stronger. I think the points of division and accusation are going to be the biggest points that disappear. And so it's now actually going to be learning how to utilize the hand instead of try to be the hand or instead of judge the hand. We're going to be looking at, oh, that's the hand. We need that. And now we know we need that, and we know how that operates. And now when we're interacting with each other, the arm and the hand aren't in pride against one another for their different points. We actually are in flow. And, uh, and so I think there's going to be just a lot. Plus, I really believe the word that the Lord gave Mike Bickle about the international family of affection, and specifically the part where he's going to take strong members from this group swirl and congregation and, and focal point, take them out of that camp and put them in this camp over here in order to actually spread the DNA of the church and cross-pollinate across, uh, across the earth. So there's going to be some of that going on as well. So it's, it is a really glorious time to be alive and to see us grow up into fullness. So to me, the greatest point of focus in answer to the question is the removal of the divisions instead of the removal of the distinctions. I think the distinctions are on purpose, uh, but the division is what's going to uh, go away. All right, uh, group question. So fullness equals maturity of 500 things. Is there kind of a front runner? Is there a catalyst to kind of get us all there? Or is it, as we were talking from even Caitlin's question, do all the different camps and groups and this is and that's all kind of grow up together? I think it's actually, I think the answer is my house will be called a house of prayer. And I think as the house is called a house of prayer, I think that's where intimacy flows, power flows, unity flows, worship increases, the presence of God rests in the worship, the people's hearts are softened and grow in joy and humility. Uh, a, a group that's praying is a group that's more easily discipled. A group, I, I think that what God is doing in this generation is he's changing the expression of Christianity to bring the whole church into the reality of night and day prayer because those that cry out to him night and day will receive speedy justice. I think what the Lord is doing is I think he's bringing the church into a posture in this generation where the church is going to begin to cry out in corporate prayer together in a way we never have before, which is then going to empower us for every form of growth. Just as a quick history lesson, and then we'll uh, go into our time of worship here. So uh, 20 years ago, there were only a small handful of prayer expressions in the earth that were literally 24-7. When I say a small handful, it was maybe a dozen were known about. Maybe a dozen were known about. Now, if only a dozen are known about, surely there's some more out there, but there's not a million more out there, okay? Right now, there are over 20,000 expressions of 24-7 prayer known about. Over 20,000 24-7. We're not on the list. We're not 24-7. So in 20 years, you went from 12 to 20,000, 24-7 houses of prayer. 24-7. We're not on the list. So expressions like this are coming up alongside all of that, but are not even included in that statistic. What's happening right now is the Lord is changing the understanding and the expression of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he's, he's, he, the Lord is the one doing it. He's actually making good on his statement, my house will be called 
a house of prayer. The primary thing, not the only thing that happens there, but the primary thing, the thing that happens more than anything else, is that it will be a house of prayer. It's the wisdom of God. It's the reason, let me just, another piece of history. The reason that when the nation of Israel was established, the very first thing that happened was they needed a 24-7 prayer ministry. It's the very first thing that was established when they got out there in the desert. They didn't even have dirt yet, and the priesthood was put into place, and a 24-7 prayer and worship ministry was established. Because when God thinks how his people are supposed to flow, he's thinking night and day prayer and worship. And out of that then flows every blessing, every promise, every strength, every protective grace. So I think that what we're going to witness in this next 10 or 20 years, we're going to watch that expression number go from 20,000 to 200,000 to 200 million. I mean, there's going to be houses of prayer all over. When I say house of prayer, I don't mean what we're doing here. I just mean the ministry thinks we pray. If we don't do anything else, for sure we pray. We do everything out of prayer. Corporate prayer meetings is what we do. And that's what I'm saying when, I'm, when I say house of prayer. It can look a lot of different ways. So, great question. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.